Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab and lucky you, lucky you because you are joining us for the second part, the mini series within the mini series about property business models as part of the property and business series as part of the Investor Lab podcast. And of course, that means that I am joined by my good friend, Charlie. How are you, mate? I'm excellent. It's such a pleasure to be here for the mini series within the mini series. Yeah, so so meta. Um, but you know what? This episode follows on from the previous episode we did about property business models. So this is like property property business models episode two. But you know what? Uh, we we really went in some pretty wild directions on this one, didn't we, Charlie? What was your synopsis on on where we went and how this kind of would benefit people? Okay, so I thought we were actually going to get this done in one episode, and in hindsight, I reckon we could have made it three. Um, so it's quite interesting. I'm glad we made the space for it though. I really am glad we made the space for it. And I think a lot got added in that maybe isn't directly related to business models, but yet so important to understand to bring it back to business models. Hmm. So I, I'm really happy we covered it in that way. Some of the things that we covered here, which I think are really different that don't necessarily get discussed elsewhere was it's not just about the business model. There's also stages to a business model. And I, I loved your three-part breakdown of the stages, which I believe were, I'm going to say business terms. It was like startup, growth, and legacy. Um, but yep. in your terms, it's, I think it is foundation, accelerate, and legacy. Yeah. So that was the huge one there. What about you, Chris? Um, my biggest take, you know what? My biggest takeaway actually was, um, or actually the biggest benefit, I'm going to go, the biggest benefit that I think people are going to get out of this is learning how to elevate their thinking into a non-linear and exponential and geometric way. Because when you think about, uh, when you think about real estate and like any business, if you look at it in a silo and look at, look at what the one unit of outcome might be on a per month or a per year basis, it can sometimes be almost impossible to understand how that thing can scale. You know, how do I how would I scale a business that's only doing this? What you got to realize is that along the way, you're going to change the recipe, mix up the pot, and you're actually going to create a very different and geometrically geometrically or exponentially different outcome. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do for business owners and non-business owners who want to understand actually what is the benefit of doing anything and what are the risks and benefits and actually how do I move from one phase to another? So I think that this episode, as much as anything, is going to give some real context around how this kind of thinking applies, not only in a real estate sense, but in a business sense, and actually how to think your way to getting to that next level, which is the most important thing because you know you need to be able to see what that pathway looks like and start to be able to think strategically to get there. Absolutely. Let's get into this episode. I'm sure people enjoy the mini-series with the, uh, the mini-series. I'm absolutely confident. I'm absolutely confident. And you know what? I've got one request. I would love to know your biggest takeaway. If you're a business owner or a non-business owner and you listen to this, I would love for you to email me personally, goose at dash dot com dot au and tell me what was the biggest breakthrough that you had out of this episode? Because I'm confident somebody's going to have a big breakthrough and go, oh my God, I've been thinking about this all wrong. That's how passionately I feel about the, the, the content we've produced in this one. I think it's awesome. Now, further to that, I've got one major request. If you can go and subscribe to this podcast, if you jump on Apple, yeah, if you're on, if you use your phone, jump on Apple. Apple, if you're on your Mac, jump, open up the podcast app, look up the Investor Lab and just hit subscribe. It's the only thing I want you to do. You know, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your mum, tell your, tell your loved ones about how cool this is. But if you go and subscribe, that would really mean a lot. We actually recently um, cracked like the top 10 in the entrepreneurship pod, uh, uh, charts in Australia, which I'm pretty proud of. But I want to see us do more of that because it's really helping people along the way and I'm getting a lot of feedback about it. So... All of that being said, that's enough waffle. Let's get stuck into it. Enjoy this episode and I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're with your pals Goose and Charlie and we are entering into... Part number two, we've we, an abridged version, the abridged, the sequel to property. It's a, pro- it's a sub-series within a sub-series. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Inception where there was a mini-series and now there's a mini-series within the series. How, how meta, how absolute, how absolutely meta. This is, oh man, this is fractal. This is fractal. Everyone's tripping out. So we're talking today about uh, property investing business models and continuing that conversation because as is want to happen, I tend to go, oh, go a little tangential when we talk about this kind of stuff. So what we intended to cover in one episode has now become two episodes. Um, but I think there's still a lot of ground to cover, right? 
I actually thought we would get through it in one episode, but I'm really happy we didn't because a lot of the points we expanded upon, I felt really gave context and understanding to some areas of property and finance and negative gearing that I think a lot of people need to know more about, especially business owners. Oh, dude, 100%. I, interestingly, um, I don't, and again, I, let, try and keep me on track, Charlie, because this could end up, we could end up having a three-part mini-series, right? A mini, mini, mini-series. I actually was talking to a, a business owner yesterday who, um, you know, like he's gotten that point in his business where he, you know, is making decent profits, you know, all everything's going good, stable business, good industry, all that kind of stuff. And he, he came and spoke to me and had actually been getting advice uh, to go and do negative gearing. And I was just like, oh man, like this is, it's like, there's an epidemic, there's a pandemic out there uh, of bad advice. I stand by my comments. I just want to find the PR company <coughs> or the marketing company that worked on negative gearing and see oh, if they're available. So good. So good. Yeah. All right. So, well, that's not what we're going to be talking about today though, because we kind of covered that. We sort of also talked a little bit about, we talked about flipping and all of that kind of stuff. We kind of talked about sort of manufacturing equity and stuff. We also talked about, you know, the Eisenhower matrix of active, passive, cash flow and growth and, and working out where things kind of sit on that. So we kind of sort of covered some pretty good ground there. What we sort of didn't really talk a lot about though was cash flow. My favorite topic. My absolute favorite topic when it comes to property. And that is why we call you Cashflow Charlie after all. So, <laughs> um, so I, it's my, my favorite topic as well because at the end of the day, you know, and I've said this, I'll, I'll continue saying this and I'm just going to continue saying it and I don't really care. The function of a business is to turn assets into cash and your property portfolio is a business and the function is to turn those assets into cash. It's really that simple. You know, I actually did a, um, I, side note, I actually did a webinar last night um, which was heaps of fun and it was fantastic. And we sort of f- did it as like a, a like a live forum as opposed to like, hey, here's some slides. And we actually, so it was lots of questions and answers and it was like a live event. Uh, and I had this guy on there who was like 56 uh, and he's got no, he's got, he, he's a, the advice that he'd been getting and he was asking for some help on this was to buy properties that were negatively geared, get this, increase, so like focus on, on capital growth and then withdraw the equity out of the property and use that cash, like turn that asset into cash that way, we draw the equity out of the property and use that as your spending money, which is, which is something that um, a lot of people may have heard, particularly by some, I guess, should we say, larger names in the, in the industry. And I was like, okay, he's like, but I have no income. I have no wage. I don't work. And I was like, so how are you going to get that cash out? Now, rental income will contribute to a component of that. But at the end of the day, if you don't create surplus cash flow, all, all, all you're going to be doing is trying to trying to basically take bricks out of a house and go spend it at the shops. It's, very, it's a very challenging proposition and it has a very uh, short half-life in my opinion. It's a really interesting one. This is actually a strategy I came across earlier on when I started, I suppose, discovering property and what it could be. And it sounds very viable until you get into the details. It really, really does. Like if Australia has been such a growth market and you end up with all this growth captured within a house, a line of credit completely makes sense until you realise you need a financing ability to get a line of credit. Like They're not just going to give you a line of credit. And not to mention that you take out the ability to ever really pay that home off or use uh, the debt in a different way or get into that next property. Like it just sounds super risky to me. I, I think it's crazy risky because all it takes, all it takes is a slight change in banking policy and then that whole strategy is stuffed. And what we've seen over the last, you know, well, God, you pretty much see it every week. Banks change their lending policies. It's not something that happens in a once in a lifetime event. Banks will just arbitrarily say, banks will stop lending money. Like a lot of people don't realize this, but banks will actually stop lending money. You know, they have a, they have a threshold of how much debt they're prepared to, um, you know, generate and to lend out to. And it happens very frequently throughout a year. You'll typically, I kind of see it from the inside. You'll see one lender will, will go really hard and try and get all the loans that have a really low interest rates. And they'll try and get as many customers as they can by creating this environment to get as many. And then they'll go, oh, hang on. We can't take on any more debt. We're not going to lend any more money. Bang, done, stopped. So regardless of what you do, they're just like, we won't lend any more money. We've reached the limit of our threshold um, until people start paying down more debt. So what people don't understand is that this is a, a, it's a finite game to kind of play it like that. The inverse of that is to actually just go, well, how can I just create an environment where I have cash in my bank and, and I can actually go and spend that 
and it actually helps me to contribute to or, or you know, the, the properties that I have benefit more greatly from, from increased capital growth and I build more equity. It actually creates a, an inverse compounding effect where you will be able to generate more equity and actually have more cash if you don't do that strategy. Make sense? It definitely does. It's just one of the things I really want to, I suppose, for us to speak into or you more particularly because you understand this better than I do. The light bulb moment, I'll call it, was the idea that you can actually have positive cash flow properties in Australia that aren't in mining towns. I think there's a really interesting perception that you are the negative gear, like you can go extreme growth in a capital city like Melbourne or Sydney or Bondi or whichever one you want to pick that might actually have some growth, I'm not sure. Or you go super risky mining towns for yield and there's no middle ground or ability to create like a cash flow and growth portfolio or something. Yeah, like absolutely. That. And I think this is like if I had if I had one mission, like I've got a lot, but if I had one big mission, it would be to break that myth. Um, as soon as because you're right, a lot of people think that you only have two options. You either go for growth, and people look at the compound effect of growth and they go, Well, of course you go for that, or you flick the light switch. And you go to the other option, and they're like, and they're complete. They don't blend. It's like oil and water, or you get cash flow. And it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, you've got to buy a lot of properties to get that to work. You know, like you know, and it, and it becomes this disparate thing where people go, well, man, I don't want to go buy in a tiny country town. That doesn't kind of make a lot of sense to me. I don't want to buy in a risky mining town just to try and get you know a few grand a year in cash flow. Or, and when people think about it like that, I mean, like quite frankly, why would you? However. One of the biggest issues that I think is that people face is they don't understand that like everything in life, there's variations of grey, you know. So there's kind, of a, there's kind of a line in the middle which we would say would be balanced where you would get a balanced amount of growth and yield. And that's roughly, in my opinion, roughly around 5.5% yield. Now, that doesn't in immediately, like if you get a property that's 5.5% yield, that doesn't immediately dictate that it is also going to be in a growth area but typically for my analysis, that's kind of where the balance point sits, where you'll probably be producing enough cash flow for it to pay for itself, pay for its own expenses and all of that kind of stuff, five and a half to six percent. It'll cover its it'll cover itself. So you'll get that benefit. And theoretically, as long as you're following some other key indicators, you're going to be buying in a better location for to get a little bit of growth. Will it be as much growth as like one extreme end of the spectrum? No. Will it be as much cash flow as one other extreme end of the spectrum? No. But there is a variation of gray as you go either side of a balance point, just as anything in life. It's a, you know, it's a bell curve. Now, the key, the key is not trying to just go, well, how can I sit on the edge of the bell curve? Because as we all know in life, the greatest gains are found on the edges. You know, the, the, the way you get the, where you get the highest amount of reward out of anything is when you go fully in one direction. But the problem with that is that you have to compromise. So what we want to think about is how do we get balance? How do we get growth? When do we need more growth? Um, what kinds of growth can we get? When do we need more cash flow? What kinds of cash flow can we get? How can we get that cash flow? What kind of models and structures can I do to achieve that outcome? And you've got to think about it in a little bit, little bit more like an ecosystem where you can oscillate around a central balance point to achieve your goal. It's interesting. When you first kind of shared this concept with me, do you, do you want to know what it reminded me of? What? Do you want to know? Yeah, when I, I used to sell things on eBay. <laughs> I know that's an odd uh, that's correlation. That's weird. But, well, you've, you've kind of said you've like, oh, 5.5% is our sweet spot on yield. Yeah. So for, for me, when I used to do eBay, my kind of sweet spot is I would look for products where I could get 40%. And if I couldn't get 40% profit margin on selling something, I just wouldn't get it. Yeah. It didn't mean those other products were good or bad. They just weren't right for my business model. Totally. Because if I managed to, let's say I bought something that had a 20%, I'd have to get a lot of it to actually store it to make the money I wanted to make. So I run into storage issues. I'd have to come up with more cash to make the same money. Yeah. Um, like there was a whole bunch of challenges that came up with it. And then conversely, um, let's say there were products out there that had a higher margin, but maybe they were priced in a way where they took longer to get or they had um, payment plans, so bigger items where I would receive cash more slowly. So it was this really interesting um, idea that, what I used to look for, and this is going way back now, way, way back, where I used to literally sit on AliExpress is the site. I think it's still out there. 
and I'd look for items that were selling on AliExpress and make sure that I had that type of margin sitting on everything. And I used to just like cross-reference making mm. sure it was right for my business model. And I think for a lot of business owners, particularly when they kind of – if you explain it in those terms, it's like, oh, okay, right. It's just like I'm finding the right products for my store. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's where it kind of comes into it. Yeah, totally. And it's exactly the same thing as like, you know, you can get someone who has an info product business and they may have a 90% uh, gross margin, right? And it's like, wow, that's fantastic. You don't need to do much and you get a lot. Uh, Then you can go to the other end of the spectrum and you could have a, you know, a low ticket uh, mass product supply, toothbrushes, for example, where you might make, I don't know, I don't know the margins on a toothbrush, but let's just say it's five cents per toothbrush after manufacturing and distribution costs, but you've got to sell like 10 million toothbrushes and there's a volume game. Now, this is, uh, there's obviously different absolutes there, but what you're going to have in the toothbrush example is you're going to have a lot of equity. You're going to have infrastructure, trucks, products. You're going to have all of this kind of stuff and if you really wanted to, if you really wanted to, uh, you know, get some capital out of that, you could go to a bank and say, "Look, I've got ten million toothbrushes, five factories, and six trucks. So I've got all this infrastructure and I've got all these assets. Um, can I have some cash, please? Because I'm not, you know, I'm making five cents a toothbrush. On the other end of the spectrum, you could have someone who has an info product and they make, you know, maybe they make uh, five thousand dollars per per customer or client, uh, but it's ninety percent profit." And they only just sell a couple of them. And they're like, cool. They're just like surfing them. What's going on? And these are the different ends of the spectrum. Now, I'm not saying one is better than the other, right? But what I am saying is that you need to understand what your business model is and how it's going to serve you to get to where you want to go. You know, just in the same way within business, you know, we see people that maybe make, I don't know, $10 million a year, but their whole life is work. You know, like the whole, it's all work. And you get somebody else who makes, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year as a lifestyle entrepreneur. And they're like, dude, they're, they're cruising, man. They're like, they're like working 10 hours a week. They're happy. And, and I'm not saying one, one person is more happy or more fulfilled than the other, but they're two very distinctly different pathways. Both people are in business, but two very different outcomes. So talk more into this, I'll call it blended strategy. We're, we're in the uh, rosé territory of um, property uh, now, a blended strategy. Um, but I, I would just want you to go a little bit more deeply in here into like how this can really look. Like what's a blended uh, strategy or a cash flow strategy with a bit of growth here? And like what does that look like as an example? Okay, so to, to talk into this, I want to talk about the three phases of every property portfolio. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, so there's three phases of every property portfolio, and I challenge anyone to disagree with me because I can't, just can't see it in any other way. Um, this is what we call the apex progression. Now, on the first level, you've got what we call foundational properties. Startup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like startup to scale up, right? You can, you can. We actually did a a, a, a diagram called the entrepreneurial grid, where we can actually match uh, the different phases of the apex uh, apex progression with your 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 property journey phase, which is interesting. Maybe we can I'll, maybe we can chuck them in the show notes or something. Um, now, the thing is with foundation level, what you are looking for is you're looking for that balance. Yes, you definitely want to get capital growth. Why? Because you need to increase your capital position. I'll explain why that's important in a moment. But you also need to make sure that the properties are going to be producing enough income to cover their debts and expenses. Why? So you can increase your serviceability. Now, actually, I'm going to go back on that. You don't want to increase your serviceability. You want to get your serviceability back, right? So I'm just going to explain this very carefully because I had this conversation with a client and one of our team members yesterday. Let's just say you have, you go to the bank and you say, hey, look, I earn X amount of dollars. And they say, great, you have a serviceable borrowing capacity of $500,000. Yeah, fantastic. So I can borrow $500,000 and I have, let's just say $100,000 cash. And let's just say you went to go buy a $600,000 property. I've got $500,000 of borrowing capacity, so debt asset and $100,000 of cash. Now, if your property can cover all of its own debts and expenses, it is likely, depending on the lender, that you're going to regain 80% of the amount of debt that you've used on that property back into your borrowing capacity. So you're not going to increase your borrowing capacity from five from five hundred to $600,000 or $700,000. But what you will do is you will get it back, which means that you have more debt that you can then use for another property. Does that kind of make sense? So my math serves me roughly uh, in this scenario. Someone buys a house for $600,000 yeah. and they've put 100000 down. They've used 500000 of borrowing capacity. Yeah. That, they would get 80% of that back 
in this scenario and then they potentially would be able to buy another property for 400,000. Correct, correct. So now obviously that has a diminishing return as you go, but this is we'll, we'll get into sort of how to offset that diminishing return in time. Now, the thing is a lot of people when they're investing in I, I would actually go as far as to say I'm I have not met I don't think I've met a single property investor who doesn't have a desire for cash flow. Like most people like I want growth and I want all this other stuff but they want cash flow. Like everyone wants cash flow. You know, I want growth. Why? So that I can get more cash flow. Like it's it's always comes back to cash flow. And the reason for that is it's cash flow that's going to replace your income. It's cash flow that's going to allow you to do whatever you want in life and to have a reliable recurring revenue stream. You know, the holy grail for most businesses, reliable recurring revenue stream. It's the most reliable and the most recurring out of all of them, right? So it's so like you get a 12-month subscri- subscriber in every property you buy. So now... Leaning back into that, so what we want to do is we want to create this base where you're going to get growth, but you're also going to maintain or keep buying back your borrowing capacity. The reason this is important is you want to spread your base. This becomes the engine room. Now, how wide do you need to spread that base? Well, it's going to depend on on who you are, what type of properties you're buying and all of that kind of stuff. But typically, typically you only need to buy two to four for most people, foundation properties to really serve as a functional engine room in your property portfolio. Now, the reason we haven't lent into in this phase like heaps of cash flow or heaps of growth is because what you're trying to create is an environment where your portfolio is going to give you the, the, the capital that you need to fund these kind of activities a little later without you getting stuck. Can we pause right there? Can we yeah. can we make this a business example? Because I love what you said, but I think if you're a business owner, this is where it's like the confusion can start. And it did for me is why I say that. So let's pretend we're starting a business Yep. and the whole thing is we've got some capital and we're borrowing to start this business. What we're really doing here is making sure we don't buy things that prevent us from being able to buy future assets. Yeah, totally. We're buying things and setting it up so right, we're not going to buy an office or rent an office that's too big because then we won't have the cash flow to hire new people or we're not going to buy uh, way too much plant equipment because then we can't spend any money on marketing. Exactly, exactly. It's really that it's when we bring it back down to like profit and equity is really what we're really talking about here. You know, if you have something that is equity rich and you're like negative, you're you're not making any profit, like you're negative profit, then banks are not going to want to lend you any money. You're like, oh, look, I've bought this product. I've bought all the, I bought CNC machines. I've got all these product and, or or I've got all this, um, this inventory in my, in my, business, but I have no cash flow, they're probably not going to lend you any money. They're going to say, dude, you don't make any cash, right? They're not going to lend you any money. Vice versa, on the other end of the spectrum, if you say, I don't, I've got all this cash flow. Um, I have all this cash flow. Look, it's on paper and I make all this cash flow. They're like, yeah, but you don't, what, what's your inventory? You don't have, what cash in the bank do you have? What, you know, do you have any, like how many times have someone gone to a bank and they've gone, okay, as a business owner, hey, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, borrowing money to expand my business. They're like, okay, so do you own your office? Uh, no, no, no. Do you own, you know, do you have a fleet of vehicles? No, no, no. no. Do you have any assets? Uh, no, no, no. But, but like, it's cool. We can go make money. Two ends of the spectrum don't work. And so understanding that that's the thing that we're trying to do. Like the reality is, and I said this, I've said this before, but real estate investing is a game of finance with a few houses thrown in the middle. So what we need to do is we need to understand how to play the game of finance so that we can get the outcomes we want. Now, one of the big issues is a lot of people think about um, instant gratification. Now, instant gratification is a is a natural desire, and if your instant gratification uh, desire is for cash flow, then you're and you're like, dude, I want I want to replace my income in six months by doing no work. You're probably going to end up trying some I don't know drop shipping strategy, and then maybe some forex trading strategy, and you're like, blah, 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 and you're probably not going to really get to where you want to go. Now, the reason we need to uh, Put, you know, exercise delayed gratification is we need to put the building blocks in place to get a good business. Just like any other business, you need, you know, you need to make sure you have a good product. You're serving your clients well. You're taking these first steps into a new marketplace. You're understanding how the world works. If you try and go too fast, too quick, your business will break. If you try and go too slow, you're not really going to get the outcomes you want. You really want to have this in a balance where you're getting the right advice. You, you know, in the business context, you want, you know, you want to have a, a reliable uh, lead generation source plus also good referrals because you're providing good services. You want to you optimize and optimize until you get to a point where you're like, okay, cool. Now that I've kind of got this business functioning and it's profitable and it's doing all of its kind of stuff, this is the foundation level. You know, if you relate it to business, it's probably when you're in your, you know, 
you know, I would say zero to $500,000 a year kind of point or even maybe a little higher where you're going, okay, cool. Let's get this thing stable. Let's build this machine so that it works. And then once I have this thing that works and I've got a team and I don't have to burn myself out and work 14 hour days and I have leverage and I have, you know, I have a position in this business that I can tolerate and I can start to think about more exciting creative opportunities. That's when you can, that's when you can start to take that next step. Does that help put it in context? Yeah, and I was just laughing. I was kind of, it's kind of like in a business sense, those st- um, startups that actually uh, end up failing because they grow too quick. Yeah. Or they take on way too much risk trying to do extreme things when they don't have good infrastructure or a good base to work from. So if they take a hit, it's all over. Totally. I mean, a great example is, um, is there's a story, I can't remember the name of the company, but they grew their company to $250 million a year and went bankrupt because progressively they became sicker and sicker and more unhealthy and more unhealthy. And then when they hit, they hit 250 million and then realized that they, they had like a, a, an unhealthy, unsustainable business and they went bankrupt. They like the founder went bankrupt, you know, and this, this kind of thing can happen when people go too fast. So I'll, I'll really, I'll actually, I really struggle to stay high level because I don't get so deep into this. I'll go really, really high level over the three phases and I want to talk about why it's important to follow the process. Right, okay, so first phase, we're talking about balance. We're talking about, you know, a good amount of growth and a good amount of cash flow. So you're recovering your debt and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you're keeping your resource pool active and it's profitable and stable and you, that's going to create an engine room. What that's going to do is as you get growth and you've reclaimed your debt, you can actually use that equity that you've created in growth and you can use the debt which you've reclaimed by getting the positive cash flow to fund more exciting activities, i.e. you've created your stable business. Now what? Should I try a YouTube strategy? Uh, maybe I'm going to buy a different business. Should we open another franchise in a different state? This is where it starts to get interesting. What should we do next? Now, the next piece is where things start to really get a little more exciting and more fun. Now, this is where we start to think about things like subdivisions, granny flats, dual occupancies, you know, more complex strategies that are specifically designed to increase either your equity or your cash flow, depending on what your portfolio or business needs the most. So for example, if you, for, for when you start future planning, if you're going, well, in order for us to get to the, where we really want to go, we need to increase our profitability first so that we can actually leverage against our equity, then you can focus on that. If you're cash, if you're cash flow rich, but asset poor, then you want to focus on equity building activities. And this is the, this is the dance that we need to play in order to keep our, to keep our portfolio in balance. And just like any business, as a business grows, you want to be increasing your profitability, right? You're, you're, you know, it's natural when you're starting out, your profitability is going to be low, but you're like, right, cool, I'm doing it. And then as your business grows, you should get more efficient. You should, your profitability should increase. Like your bottom line should go up, not just your top line. And this is the same kind of concept that we want to, want to push here. And this is where you start to really manufacture and pull the, move the chess pieces around on the board. The next phase is what we call the legacy phase. That's where you start going, okay, now that I've generated all of these assets and you know, I've run a profitable business along the way, I've played the game of finance, I've danced the dance, now my business has gotten to a certain size, how do I turn these assets into cash, like real cash? And that's where you start to increase your profitability in your portfolio in a very significant way. So let's, let's use some examples here. I think we'll make them business examples, right? So we've built our foundational level. Yep. We then need to start, we'll call it dancing the dance of uh, cash or equity. And we're going to use this magical factory as the example here. So we might get out of our foundational stage and say, right, we want to increase, increase cash. So we're actually going to buy marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. We're going to ramp up our marketing sales to increase cash. Then once we've done that, we go, well, actually, we want to now invest in plant Mm -hmm. because plant increases capacity or equity. So then you're balancing those two to drive the whole level of the company up and you can sway which side you want to invest in based in on that. You can't obviously sell more stuff and increase cash flow if you don't increase the ability to have that equity on the side. So you've got to play both sides. Yeah. And then eventually you get to that stage, you've grown your company and maybe you're a $10 million company now. When you want to shift into that legacy phase, it's like, right, how do we buy out our supply chain line? Yes. It's like these really insanely huge Apple-esque moves of like just taking out ecosystems. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, the, the differentiation here between that kind of thing where you're going, okay, well, how do we buy out, how do we buy out a supply chain? Uh, how do we build our own manufacturing plant? Uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. 
you know, should we stop? And it could even be as simple as like, should we stop renting an office and should we just buy the office? Now, I've got clients that have done that <laughs> and they, they bought the office in cash because they really had gotten to that point. They bought the whole office floor in cash and now that produces just that activity. That produces about $30,000 net cash flow because they rent it back to themselves. So they bought it and they rent it back to themselves. And it's this kind of like transition between these two entities and these ideas that is really where it comes into play. This is why I'm glad we threw out my framework, Goose, at this point is because we wouldn't have had this conversation if we didn't. But I think you've introduced an interesting layer to this and you kind of mentioned it in the first part of this episode is it's not just about like are you what your business model, but there's also stages to that business model just like there would be in a business. Yeah. So like thinking to outcomes and stages and it's it's not just about, oh, should you do granny flats or should you subdivide or should you do negative gearing? It's like matching the whole game plan up just like you would in business in itself. Absolutely. So we could pull this back to like a big idea example. So let's say you've got a big idea and, you know, you've you've created a widget. Now there's probably – there's probably – a dozen or more, a hundred different ways to market and sell and profit and distribute from a widget. Now, at a certain point in your business, you might be like, right, I'm going to be service-based, right? I'm going to be a service-based business. I'm going to do X and X and X. Then you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, so I've sort of got enough clients now. We've got a really stable client base and that's kind of doing its thing. Well, what now can I do? Maybe I could sell my knowledge, okay? Maybe I could turn this information, this knowledge that I'm helping our clients with, maybe I could turn that into an info product or, or you know what? Maybe I could actually turn it into a tool that I could sell online, e-commerce, and you can start to kind of do these different things. And it's the same process that we need to go through. Granny flats are just like, do I do a course? Should I, should I create a course? You know, should I do that, or should I um, should I productize it? Should I try and get distribution into supermarkets? You know, it's the different. It's understanding what the different levers you can pull and actually what the impact of that would be. You know, some are going to be more complex. Some may have higher rewards. The problem that I think a lot of people make, not not just in real estate but in business and everything, is they go, "What is the what makes the most money? What?" makes the most money because I'm just going to do that. Why would I do all the bits in the middle? Why wouldn't I just go for the bit that makes the most money? Right? And a lot of people get distracted by that. Now, in the case of real estate, I mean, there's, I mean, you could kind of cut that in a bunch of different ways, but we could say, for example, one of those might be large development. Now, large development, large development, I mean, you know, we're talking greenfield estates, we've seen them on the outskirts of cities, 100, 200, 3,000 lot developments. Now, these companies are like listed on the stock exchange. They're big. Companies like Stockland and Lendlease and all of these companies, they're huge. You go, well, I want to be like them. So what do you do? Like, are you going to go and buy you know, a thousand acres and turn that into a 10,000 lot development? No, you, it won't work. Like it's a bad idea for you to do that unless, unless you have progressively built yourself up to the point where you have like a very sizable capital allocation, uh, a very sizable knowledge base, and you can effectively execute in that uh, environment, just in the same with any other aspect of business. Yeah, it's a really interesting thinking pattern here again. I know we sidetracked from the original idea of this episode, but it's like <laughs> it's such an important conversation to have that I'm th- I'm thrilled it is appearing here because it's certainly th- the things that have consumed my thoughts because we've got these like, I don't know, this uh, lizardy brain in us all as yep. humans and business owners where we're just trying to understand the minimum of like, right, so you just do this and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. But that's not how it works. Like there are stages to this whole thing being yeah. and working well. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, for example, let's just say you go back to the start and let's just say you go and buy a $300,000 property that's, so let's say, 6% yield. That's what that's where I actually think the sweet spot actually is, is 6%. Um, 5% sort of, it's in that gray, 5 to 6%. Let's say it's 6% yield and it's producing, let's just say, $1,500 a year in cash flow. A lot of people are going to go, hang on a second, what do you mean? It's only $1,500 a year. If I want $150,000 a year in cash flow net, Man, did it, what? I'm gonna have to buy a hundred of these. You know, like what's the what's the go? And ha- where is that line? Now it just doesn't work exactly like that. So what we need to do is the things that you do at the start. Let, let me rephrase this: the thing that gets you out of Egypt won't get you to the promised land. But what you need to do is you need to put the right steps in place to get you there. So what? I, let's digress there because I think there's something very interesting in what you just said. Like you've just made the whole idea: if you were going to buy a property for about five hundred thousand on a six percent yield, it's likely to make you about fifteen hundred dollars a year in cash flow, roughly. You would you would estimate? Yeah, it depends on cost of money and stuff, but yeah, yeah, it depends on your bank, depends on your agent fees, or, or your tenant, your rent, whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, but let's pretend that's a rough idea. It's like well. 
the goal isn't to accumulate 150 of them. It might be to accumulate five of them or so on. Yeah. How does how does that work? Okay, so we kind of that's a good it's a good question, right? And this is where a lot of people stumble at the start because they think, hang on a second, I need to go for maximum cash flow because if I can find one asset which produces ten thousand dollars cash flow, I only need to get ten of them to get to hundred grand. Versus uh, asset produce, that produces a thousand dollars cash flow, I need to get a hundred of them to get to a hundred thousand, um, and that's very linear thinking. The like anything, particularly in business, you know, linear thinking won't get you to where you want to go. You need to think exponentially and geometrically. Now, within the economics of uh, an asset, just in the same within the economics of the business, you have different you have different forces: growth, cash flow, and debt. We've kind of talked about all of these kind of things. So, growth will actually give you a greater compounding return than cash flow. So, the goal early on is not cash flow. The goal is growth, but the goal is to have growth in a way that the debt is recovered. So the, the assets produce a, a net profit. Now, once you can do that, then you can, you can, as I say, you buy back your debt allowance essentially and then you can then transfer that equity into more significant activities. That's the goal. Like that's the function. Now, just in the same way that when you're just starting out in a business, you might have a goal of, I don't know, 10 employees and a million dollars net. I don't know, right? If you try and do that the day you open your doors, you're going to break. You need to, you need to build those steps up. So the goal, like you might, the first year you're in business, you start your business for the first time, man, you might make 10 grand profit. You might make $10,000 profit. In fact, I've done this in business and actually grown top line, but not grown bottom line. I'm like, yeah, we've got a big business. Yeah. Are- you're not a real business owner until you've done that. Yeah. We're like, yeah, <laughs> revenue. We've gone there for revenue and basically didn't make any profit. And then it's like, Man, okay, hang on a second. So what? So if I let's say I make a million dollars revenue and ten thousand dollars profit, that means if I want to get to a hundred thousand dollars profit, I need to make ten million dollars in revenue. No, it probably shouldn't necessarily equal that. Um, but what we want to do is we want to get more efficient. We want to transfer the efficiency and e- efficacy of the way we're distributing our resource pool. So what I always like to think about is within a resource pool, you've got a variety of different things. You've got time, energy, you know, in this context, you've got time, energy, um, cash, uh, uh, debt, and equity. Pretty much like that's what you've got to play with. It's really about working out how and when to move those pieces around the chessboard to get you to, to get you to the desired goal. You know, most of the time when you play chess, you don't, you don't win with a pawn, but the pawn is the first piece you move. Another good uh, analogy there, Gary. So I, I want to change the question a little bit then because I don't think any business owner, myself included, got into business thinking that they were going to make a bajillion dollars year one and work it all out. Maybe some people did. I certainly didn't. But I would say like no one kind of expected to get it all right in year one and they took, I, I expect as I did, quite a long-term approach of thinking, well, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So when I got into business, in one way or another, I was like, this is what I'll be doing ongoingly might have different businesses, mm-hmm. might do other things, might start things, might fail things, but it's like it's a, a very long-term view. If you were going to bring that thinking over into property, what type of view do people take here? Like what's a reasonable amount of time to think it would take for someone to build a reasonable portfolio or property outcome? Well, without wanting to sound too ambiguous, it, it entirely depends. You know, if, if, if someone's starting with $50,000 uh, in cash and – um, they've got, I don't know, a $50,000 income, it's going to be a bit slower to start out with versus if someone's got $100,000 cash and $100,000 of income, that's going to be a different, again, again, a very different scenario. So what we need to consider is, is again, what is, the total, what is the total resource pool and resource allocation? Now, the old way of thinking is that um, basically you just buy, you, 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 you bust yourself to try and buy two properties, which are essentially negatively geared and, and then hope that, um, hope that you can continue to pay that debt until eventually the debt gets paid down and in 30 years' time you get the equity and some cash flow out of two properties. But if but business owners are very strategic and that's why, you know, I like working with business owners. If you actually look at what the resource resource pool is and think about how we can distribute those in a slightly different way, like if we have if we increase our profitability at a certain point, you know, and then we increase our equity at a different point, but we've increased our profitability so that we can reinvest in equity building activities. It's the same. It's the same thinking paradigm, right? So if you know, it's kind of like the bloat and cut line that you've got to follow. In anyone who's looked at business finances will know that they don't go straight; they go in a wave. 
you know, you, you, you get profitable, you, get, you start making more revenue, you start making more profit, you go, okay, great. If we actually want to sustain this, we've got to reinvest in, in, in infrastructure, human or otherwise. And then so you go below the, the mean or the median. It's like, it's like breathing. Exactly. It's an in and out cycle. Exactly. And you've got to consistently follow this. If you just go, if you go, no, 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 we want to stay above one side of the line. We want to be profitable, only profitable. You're not going to be building the infrastructure you need to maintain that business will break. It like might stay there until it just stops and doesn't work. It just stops dead. Most if- people experience that with their first employee, right? If they if they start on their own and it's like, well, sweet, super profitable on my own, and then you employ someone else, you're like, oh, this why don't sucks. I make any money? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's um and it's the same kind of thinking. Now, if the the more that you can understand this dance, right, which is all it is, right? It's it's like bloat, cut, profitability, you know, cash, equity. It's it's the same. It's the same movement. You know, everything in the universe works in a frequency and it works in a flow. Real estate's actually no different if you just look at it from a macro level. Now. You asked the, your point was basically how quick can you do it? That was the question. I think I want to set a reasonable expectation, and you can set the boundaries of where someone starts or what they have to contribute. But I yeah. think it would be help as a, helpful as a benchmark. Totally. Look, I would say a reasonable expectation would be five to ten years, depending on what the goals are. Now, I say a reasonable expectation that would be based on, let's say, having, uh, let's just say, having a uh, hundred grand in cash plus say $5,000 a month of contributable income. So, you know, you can take five grand to 10 grand a month off the table. Let's, yeah, let's just use some boundaries. Let's say like 100 to, 100, 100 to 200 grand cash. You can take off the table in your business, say five to 10 grand a month and you're prepared to continue to reinvest that into your portfolio. Then if we then do that and then also reinvest the cash flow in your portfolio, it's, and let's just say you had a goal, now I'm talking very broadly here, Let's just say you had a goal of $100,000 cash flow um, or a certain equity position. Now, here's the thing. There's a bit of a timeline here. I think that we could achieve the portfolio that's going to give you that outcome in about five years, but the net realization of that cash flow may not come for, say, seven to 10. So it's kind of like a five to 10-year time frame, and most people can actually most people can actually give themselves an exit strategy from their business if they just think about it a little more strategically. How interesting. So in in that idea... I mean, there's a bit of delayed gratification, but I kind of go for the view that the time's going to pass anyway. I think it's ignorant and silly not to consider options outside of business as well when there's so much changing in the world as it looks. Yeah. So seven to ten years will set as the boundary from there. Starting point of a hundred to two thousand, hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, and a contributable of five thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So I'll give you a little context around that because we actually that. It may actually even be a little quicker than that. I just don't want to give people the wrong expectation. So a recent example of a business owner that we're currently working with, um, starting point, $75,000. A monthly contribution so they can put towards their portfolio is 5000 Now, we've built out a plan and a model. Like any forecasting model, it is a model. We haven't gone and bought all the properties yet. But based on what we know about how it all works, about how finance, um, you know, yields, returns, growth, expectations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, We've reasonably been able to set a reasonable expectation and build a reasonable plan based on reasonable averages that would allow them, as those particular couple of business owners, to in 10 years' time from where they are, they're about 28, right? So in 10 years' time from where they are to buy a $2 million home and also have, I think it's around about $125,000 net cash flow. Now, if you drew the line at five years, they wouldn't have that outcome. But at the five-year point, they're very much on their way to where they need to be. And really, then it's just about changing a few asset allocations along the way. Is there a time where it's too late to start? No. Nah. So if you're – sure, there is. <laughs> well, really, I mean, like, okay, let, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's be real. If you've got no cash and no income and you're 60, that's too late to start. If you've got, um, if you've got some a- actual cash or equity or an income – and you can borrow, then you can you can take action. In fact, if you've got enough cash and you can't borrow, then you can still take action and make it work, right? Now, the reason that there's a cutoff point, I would say, is because at a certain point, banks won't want to lend to you. So I had an interesting conversation with a guy. Uh, he's actually an executive for like, you know, a very high-level uh, government subsidiary. Um, he's 58, 59, right? And he's just starting, right? So... 
marriage broke up, lost everything, you know, liquidated the houses and all that kind of stuff. So now he's got about 400 grand in cash and he's got a stable job, but he's like, right, six years, 65. Oh, I want, that's my goal. As, and he approached me and said, look, I've got this vision. What I might do is I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to move into it. I'll renovate it slowly. And then that'll kind of like build up my equity. And, and I was like, here's the problem. In a couple of years, banks won't want to lend to you. So it's like, if we don't move really, really fast now, you're not going to have the ability to move slow later. And he went, oh my God, I hadn't even thought about that. At a certain point, banks are going to say, dude, you are old. I don't, you're too risky. What happens if you have a heart attack? What happens if you stop working? And they won't want to lend you the money. It certainly becomes more expensive. So that's the, that's the real limitation. Well, that's why I bring it up in all honesty because I, I, I knew there would have to be some sort of – it was a loaded question in full mm-hmm. transparency. Um, but I think this is probably something business owners need to consider in their own um, business model here in property. Like I think we take for granted, uh, you and I, Goose, that we're both of reasonable use and looks, I will say. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say we, that too. Lending is probably not going to be the barrier that's the hardest for us because we look very attractive to banks in many ways. It's like, hey, plenty of years to work, good businesses from there. But if you're at a different end of the spectrum, your decisionary around here completely changes. Uh, Moves you're going to make you completely change. And if you're 20 um, and trying to approach this different again. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's the, I think one of the biggest problems is that, and I see this with small business owners. So for example, I've had clients who like run plastering companies and stuff and have done the whole thing, plasterer, got, got, a, got five guys working for him, you know, kind of small business size, stable business, all good. Brought up the kids, got to 48 and went, um, oh my God, we haven't actually planned for the rest of it. They focused on just the, what they were doing at the time and didn't think about the future. So I look, you know, without wanting to sound like a, like a cliche, you know, it, it is kind of like the best time, the best time to start was, you know, yesterday sort of thing. Now, the, the function of that is that when people are in their 20s, typically they're not really thinking about what's going to happen in their 50s. And the reason for that is when you're 25, the whole breadth of your life experience up to that point is 25 years. And you don't even remember most of it because you were too young. So to cast your mind forward 25 years, you don't have the context of space and time to give that any real meaning. You're like, ah, well, <laughs> it's somewhere off in the distance. The reality is by the time you get to 50, you're probably like to live, likely to live to when you're 80, which is a greater period of time than you've even been alive when you're at 25. And this is the... This is the bandwidth that we need to consider. I'm by no means want to be one of those guys who's like, make sure you're saving for your retirement and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's all boring. It's like, nah, man, let's have fun along the way. In fact, rather than going, all right, all right, I guess I got to take some money off the table and I guess I've got to like save it up for when I retire. And then, you know, I guess I'm going to go play golf and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, nah, dude, let's have some fun. Right? What would change? What would change in your life? What would change in your life if all of a sudden you increased your net worth by $5 million? Well, you probably maybe not a lot, but damn, you're going to feel pretty awesome. You're going to be like, dude, I'm crushing it. Mom, dad, I'm killing it. Life is good. You're going to tell your missus, you're going to tell your friends, I'm crushing it. Life's great. You're going to have a lot more confidence. And, you're, and with that confidence, you're going to have a lot more ambition. And that confidence is going to translate into probably a healthier business, and good focus and all that kind of stuff. You're going to feel better about life, just like you do when you're like physically healthy. You're going to be financially healthy. Then you can say, well, dude, how would your life? How would your life change if you had a hundred thousand dollars cash flow that was being produced passively that you didn't even have to do anything to achieve? And most people would be like, "Give me that now." It's like, okay, we well, could probably have that in about say so five to ten years. All you need to do is keep doing what you're doing, and that's the difference. I'm developing this really interesting idea at the moment that where most of the rewards of life come are in these pursuits of reasonable long-term gratification. I'm not saying extreme, but it's like it's interesting the people that can either in health, in wealth, in fitness, in relationships, those who can play this longer game and have the foresight to it in some degree while still enjoying some things along the way tend to do really well. Yeah. All right. Wholeheart- like I wholeheartedly agree. All you need to do is read good to great, good to great for an example. You do have edge cases, right? So you do have edge cases where you might look at a company which has gone from zero to eight figures in four years and actually have stabilized. And you're like, oh, wow, they did it really fast. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that it's because somebody else did it fast, that becomes the new standard, but it's really the edge case. You know, Hold up there. Hold, hold up there. Let's hold up. 
Someone gets a, a business from zero to eight figures in four years, and I bet you it has been done, but I'll almost guarantee they probably had a business before that, experience before that, training or mentor. Like there's probably some existing unfounded things from there. It's like I I would find it statistically unlikely that there is any cases out there that go from zero to eight figures in four years that don't have some sort of X factor about them. Yeah, but it definitely happens. Like I could, I, I, you know, I could, I could name, I could probably name one or two that have been able to do that kind of, get those kind of results. But they are extreme edge cases. They are extreme edge cases, and you know, in some cases, they've they've obviously had contributing factors or some other skills to bring to the table, the right mentors, guides, and all of that kind of stuff. But they are extreme edge cases. But the problem is, we put edge cases up on a pedestal. We put edge cases up on a pedestal and say, well. Uh, you, you know, this person's been able to do build an info product business and go from this point to this point in this amount of time. Dude, what? Hang on, hang on. What am I doing? I'm wasting my life. And this is where the comparison game comes in. Um, but I don't think that that's, that's not the pathway for most business owners. You know, and if we, if we root this back down into actual simplicity and logic and math, you can actually, what you can actually do is you can get probably in this context, probably beyond eight figures and it might just take you a little slower. So somebody might have a, like a logarithmic curve where they go up faster and then stabilize. And then somebody else might have a, uh, an inverse exponential curve where they will go a little slower at the start but build a really solid foundation and end up like just like several orders of magnitude off in the distance in terms of actual outcome. And it's understanding what kind of game you want to play I think is the most important part and who you want to be along the way. Mm, I think that's an interesting idea. It's been fascinating going through these property business models with you. And I, I think we should kind of recap on it because we've gone through quite a lot here. It's like, well, my big takeaways anyway has really been is like there are property models within business. Yeah, we haven't I, even I really, talked about them, Charlie. Like I don't want to cut you off there. We haven't even talked about the business models we were going to talk about, rooming houses and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like they're tactical. I don't feel like they're yeah. business models. I feel like they're absolute tactics and it would be a um, – it's the clickbait that people probably want to hear. Mm. Like, oh my God, get a rooming house that's got this insane 13% yield or set you up. And I legitimately do click on that shit online. I'm obsessed and I love it. But I almost feel like it's a disservice to thinking about it. That's yeah. that's almost like saying, oh my God, you should do uh, Facebook drop shipping or Amazon drop shipping with Facebook ads. Like, that's the hot thing. But that's a tactic. It's not a business model. Mm. Right, and they get short-lived, and I think anyone who's been doing uh, in recent times been doing like Amazon, uh, as, what is it, Amazon affiliate, as uh, Bezos has just cut their commissions. I'm seeing Amazon businesses for sale everywhere that are just they're worth nothing. They've suddenly realised how vulnerable they are. Yeah. So I think that's like to include a tactic in the conversation of a business model is a disservice. I think we definitely covered the idea though of there is individual cases like your circumstances greatly change or. I'll even say your circumstances, skill sets, and leverage greatly discern what business model you can be in mm. or should even attempt to go after. Just like I'm not interested in doing a Silicon Valley startup. I just don't have that skill set, resources, and leverage. I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't touch it. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm good in my area and I stick to my lane. I'm like, it's been hugely advantageous for me. But then the other side of it is the active versus passive strategies. And this was more in part one. But it's like we, we spoke about the idea of like, you know, you can do renovations, flips and things like that, but you may end up putting in either personal labor or extra labor you purchase. And like it's a whole different pursuit. And then in this episode here, it's kind of like bridging that gap of going, well, if I did want to go after cash flow, is there a way of doing it that's not as high risk as mining towns or different avenues from that may have that associated risk? Probably more than mining towns that would be crazy. I imagine some tourism towns probably offer the yeah. same traits and things like that. Um, but then to the other side of that is like well, if you do go after cash flow, you kind of have to do it blended. Otherwise, you just hit a wall. You won't be able to borrow enough or do things there to make it uh, resourceful and then timelines and everything else that we've just discussed then. Like you can be too old to tackle some business models. Yeah. Like you, um, if your business model is being a professional athlete, you want to be in the Olympics or Jordan – Right, that's a business model, like a pro athlete. Probably can't do that at 65 in a lot of sports. Probably not an ideal pursuit for them. <laughs> and I will say that certain genetics suit themselves to certain things as well. Like, you know, if you're not seven foot tall, probably NBA not a great move for you. Yeah, 100%. Um, 100%. So you've got to play it. There's, there's these agendas and ideas are part of that and then uh, timelines itself, which I think is, again, what you would need to look at in a business model. And not to bang on about the Silicon Valley thing, but if you're going into Silicon Valley – you're sitting there going, look, we're going to lose money for years. We're Uber. This is a 10-year losing strategy. Yeah. 
So you have to be completely prepared for like that type of timeline if that's the business model you want to attack for you. And that emotional weight as well, right? It's not just a timeline. Couldn't do it. Yeah. And the interesting thing, the interesting thing, I'm not even really sure if we touched on it, but like the the unspoken benefit of creating positive cash flow in your portfolio, even when people go, oh my God, it's only like $1,500 a year at the start. What actually happens is when you reinvest that, either to pay down debt or to reinvest into other assets, you can you you exponentially increase the speed and also the outcome of your property portfolio, which is why it can be done like six hundred percent faster than most people think it can be done. And it's not because it's like some magic or some you know moonshot startup. It's like no, it's just the maths. Like if you just go and take that extra ten thousand dollars a year you make it in cash flow, and then put that back in your portfolio, decrease your debt, increase your income, so and you keep playing that game. It's like reinvesting in your own business and you're going to invest in that business to grow and grow and grow. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I agree. I think we have touched on some really, really good stuff because there are some very high cash flow strategies out there. In fact, a really interesting one that we're doing right now is uh, we're looking to buy a motel for one of our clients. Awesome. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's a motel in an area that has like a crazy low vacancy rate and like heaps of other good stuff going for it. And the owners just like, they're just you know, they did it up and then they just don't want to operate it because they just realized it was going to be, they actually bought it as bought the business. Actually, this is an interesting analogy to use that these, this couple bought the business a motel um, because they wanted to retire, but then they realized that, and then, so they renovated it all, painted everything, got everything nice. And then they realized that actually having guests come meant that they actually had to work. Uh, and then they went, hang on. No, we didn't. No, we didn't sign up for this. We didn't. No, 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 no. So people would come to the motel and say, look, can I, can I get a room? And they'd be like, uh, all right, I guess so. They did that for a few years where they only had about like 10, 20% occupancy in the motel. It's a 10, 10 room motel with a big suite as well. So it's kind of like an 11. Um, and, uh, and then they did that for a few years until they just went, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, customers, that's too much hard work. And they just stopped taking customers. So now they've got Not the business model for them. No, totally. So they've got a residence on this site. They've got a 10 room hotel with a three, bed- with a three bedroom suite. And they're just like, nah, customers, nah. No, nah, no good. So now we're looking to buy it with a client to turn that actually into a series of rooming houses, individual uh, individual share accommodation uh, rents and all that kind of stuff with some you know minor alterations, which for those clients at that point in their journey, they're capital rich, they're in a different, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're in a different stage in their journey. It's like, it's like perfect. It's like going to pump out a ton of cash flow and it's going to be a heap of fun to do. Vice versa, somebody else is just adding that would be the, the wrong thing. Another interesting analogy I want to point out because it relates to the business model context as well is a someone who's been engaging in our ecosystem, not a client, but you know, all around kind of good dude. He's an engineer and he's built a good engineering company. Uh, the engineering company is doing great, produces a ton of cash, and it's really stable. And he's like, he's kind of nailed it. Like he's got his business that's functioning; it's cracking it. Right, it's been cracking it for a few years. So he started thinking, well, what do I do now? And he started. He kind of threw when he's on his own property journey and found his one strategy, his one thing that he does. It's so completely niche. It's within a, it's within a, within about a 50 kilometer radius of a specific area. He only does corner block redevelopments. So within a 50 kilometer radius, he looks for any time that he can buy a corner block to do a redevelopment. It doesn't matter if it's in a flood zone because he's an engineer. So he can engineer the solution to overcome the flooding issues and all of this kind of stuff. So he's exercising his business knowledge in engineering to affect a very niche strategy. He only does corner blocks within a 50 kilometer radius and he gets an average annual internal rate of return of 25% every year reliably. He actually employs a professional just to focus on doing that part of his his other business, his property business. Fascinating. I, lo- I love that so much. Like I literally like... Um, <laughs> Um, I think that is so brilliant that someone has found their property business model within that. Totally. And I've spoken with him and he's like, I love what you guys do. I love what you do. Like, I can't help you because you are so niche in that, that you know more about that than I do. I'm like, what? you know, fantastic. But it's, you know, as you said, the riches are in the niches sometimes. So, Yeah, but talk about the ability to go granular and work out something that works right for you. Like I think that is so magical to mm. do that rather than following the herds or just going broadly into things and seeking average returns. Like I love that. I, I really do. I, I would look at that and go, this is a guy that's really, of course, put the engineering thinking behind how they're going to approach property. It's yep. great. Fantastic. It's fantastic. So what was your biggest takeaway? Do you know, even in when we 
decided to create this little sub-series within a sub-series, I did a little bit of research on these different things because I wanted to be informed. And I mentioned in the previous episode that I watched a little doco on how negative came, negative gearing came to be. Yeah. My biggest takeaway on like this whole idea is that I don't think anything's right or wrong. I think it's the player in the game that makes that move worthy or not worthy for their situation, so to speak. Yep. So I had some preconceived ideas that like I was pretty ready to give negative gearing a, a bashing um, because I think I, my personal view is there's a lot I dislike about it. And then I've came to realize that I dislike it because it's not right for me. It certainly is right for some people in certain circumstances. So my biggest takeaway is it's not that there is right or wrong with any business model or property model, but it's like you've very much got to be set up to win at that business model to succeed in the endeavor. So I kind of look at it in the biggest takeaway I got and what I would want other people to do is to understand the concepts so that they can play the game in a very advantageous way for them. That's, that is that is the one thing that I want to help people do. I'm not here to try and tell people the only thing you need to do is build granny flats. It's just not true. Like it is just, it is, it is completely incorrect. And I think one of the biggest plagues that people have got out there is you've got a lot of people in the, in the industry, the real estate industry who, who espouse that kind of knowledge. The only, the single only thing you need to do is rooming houses. The single only thing you need to do is negative gearing or the single only thing you need to do is renovate for profit or the whatever the tactic is. And each one of those things works at a certain point for a certain person in a certain way. And what you've really got to understand, you've got to elevate your thinking, which is why all everything that I approach with real estate is from an elevated viewpoint. It is, it is looking at it from a 10,000-foot view and going, okay, strategic or what is the move? What is the move we're making and why? And then once you understand what move you're trying to make and why, then you can think about, okay, well, what kind of chess pieces can I use in what order to get that outcome? And sometimes you might go, you know what? It's time for a renovation. I mean, hell, you know, it might be time for a slip a little commercial property into your portfolio for a specific reason. Just in the same way you might add, you know, a certain vitamin to your daily routine because maybe you're, you know, maybe you maybe you're calcium deficient and you need to add more calcium to your diet and you can slip that into your routine as well. Now, just having a diet of calcium supplements would not get you where you want to go, but understanding how to put it in in the right way will. Oh, just one more thing then I've got to ask you. I don't know the answer to this. Perception is, right? I, I live in a, a reasonable area. I like my area. Mm. However, it's an old area. Like it's been around for a while. Surely at some point I'm not the only suburb that's aging. Renovations must – there must be a time when renovations would become more valuable purely on the age of property. Surely. It's not that linear. Ooh, maybe in another episode we'll dig deeper. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, uh, yeah, we 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 could definitely dig deep, deep into that because what you've got to consider is not just the age of the property, but what is the product market fit, and this is this is a really big thing in any business. What is the product market fit? You know, what is the message market match? You know, I've seen a lot of people buy properties which they don't want to live in, and they go, "Oh my god!" But it's a perfect product market fit to get a really great tenant. In fact, I can, talk, I can talk to this point just quickly. I know we're running over, but you know what? I don't care, right? I don't care because this is good value and I think people will stick around and listen to it. Now, there's a, there's a suburb that we're buying in right now and we were looking at properties and we're going, okay, they could probably do with a bit of a cosmetic renovation to increase their tenantability and all that kind of stuff. However, the local market expects that quality of property. And in fact, if we were to spend twenty thousand dollars and do a renovation on it, we may increase the rent by ten dollars, but it wouldn't be a significant enough return to warrant the actual expense because we'd be overcapitalizing on it. So we may increase our equity, great, but we wouldn't increase our cash flow because it would be the it wouldn't be necessarily the right product market fit. Now, vice versa, you can kind of flip that around the other way. And if you've got a, if you've got a really rundown property, you know, worst house on the best street, that could be an awesome opportunity to enact some value to turn that around. So really what you've got to understand is, is a lot more about, you know, the psychographics, demographics, product market fit, you know, needs, wants, hopes, dreams, and desires of the people living in the area and where that trend is going so that you can design the right asset or the right product to meet that market. And that's where different, different kind of business models really come into play because just because you can put a granny flat onto a property, it doesn't mean you should. Just because there is room for it doesn't necessarily mean people want it. So if you, if you just do a thing because you're like, I can, it might not actually get you the outcome you want. 
if you build a rooming house where there's no no room for no no desire or no market for rooming houses, you're going to have an expensive failure. So, a good example. Let's say you put a granny flat on a property in Turak, right? Which is a very high end market in Victoria. I should most people, I'm sure, would know of Turak, but as an example, it's like it's not really the place for that. It's like. I mean, it might uniquely because of access and things like that, but if the market fit is people want to buy baller mansions, they're probably not necessarily looking for a granny flat. I would argue that there's a greater likelihood of that being a fit than if you than if you uh, maybe did it in Broken Hill. Like you've got to sort of consider the why people are living in certain areas. Some people, some areas, people want a backyard, and there's like there's there's very limited market. Now, what you would typically find. Like in any niche, if you go to a if you go to a large regional centre where there are very few granny flats, let's say there's a hundred thousand people in the town or city, and there's like one house that's got a granny flat out the back, it's pretty likely there's going to be a market there that exists for a certain capacity. But what you might find is that there's only a market of ten people per year looking to rent those kind of assets, like rent a granny flat. And conversely, there's only 10 people a year who don't really care about not having a backyard because it's got a granny flat in it, which means that if there were 10 granny flats, 10 houses with granny flats in that market, that would be market cap. And then if you start going, all right, well, I've seen like 10 other people do it. That's great. I'm just going to do more of that. And then you go, right, I'm going to go buy five properties and I'm going to add five granny flats. Then you've created 50% more uh, product, then there is a market need, which is going to both pull down the value of what you've done and the value of what everybody else has done. And that's why product market fit is so important. Supply and demand, love it. Yeah, indeed. Cool, man. Thank you. Let's wrap it up. Absolutely. Very insightful tales at the end there, but I agree. This has been a good micro series within the micro series. We'll be back with another episode in this series soon. Fantastic. I'm enjoying this, Charlie. So thanks very much. And thanks, guys, for listening. Really appreciate this. And if you have any feedback, let us know. Shoot us an email, send us a carrier pigeon, and keep us informed because we want to make more cool stuff for you guys. Thanks.